I'm going to keep this very, very short. Okay, because I've already done my presentation. Uh, welcome to the Work in Progress conference. Um, welcome to those who are present and also to anybody who might be viewing in by webcast. Uh, a very big welcome in particular to the people who are here from professional education who are, who are, jo who are joining us in, in Crete. That, that it's, it's really nice to have you on board as well. We have three students presenting from Crete, Maria, Ferron and Meyer, and it's particularly welcoming for us the fact that one of those students is actually presenting all the way from Japan today. We also have from the Doctorate in Education, John, and from the Business School, Claire. Um, people will be able to ask questions both online and, and, and here in the room. Um, those on the internet will need to post a question or comment and the questions will be selected and read by somebody present. I understand that Meyer has actually arranged with, with people to, to kind of man the, the laptop during the day. Um, as, as with previous WIPs presentations, this is meant to be a dry run for more formal conferences and follows a, a similar format to, to, co to conferences with presentations and refreshment breaks and a, and a lunch. But we do, do remind people that Many of, the, many of the people presenting today may be presenting academic papers for the first time. So it, it's meant to be constructive, but, but rather gentle. Um, it's a great opportunity for all of us to practice for more demanding events, active, using active listening and, and asking questions and making suggestions, as well as learning about networking and continuing conversations about presentations during the break. And there will also be some time at the end in, in order to do that. Um, we begin with an opportunity to witness a, a professional in action. <laughs> I, did, I didn't write that. I just, Regine, I'd just like to point out I didn't actually write those lines. She, she is your student, just, just to be clear on that. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to <laughs> introduce Regine Hempel, who is Crete's Director of Postgraduate Studies, with a presentation on interacting at a distance. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I just forgot one thing. Um, I, I, just, just before we finish, I'd, I'd like, on a personal note, to make a special thank you to Maya Lloyd for the amount of work that she, she has personally put in. It's a, bit, it's a bit kind of like, I feel a bit shamefaced sitting here making the welcome, because re although the, both of us have organised, it's really been her who's put all of the work into the Whips in Progress this year, and I, I think I'd just like to say a huge thank you for all of the work that she's put in, which I think has been exemplary. And thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks very much for inviting me, um, Meyer and um, Joe. They they mentioned to me that they wanted to have a sort of a proper conference, so they felt they should have some kind of a, a sort of a keynote, and then offered me I think ten minutes. It was initially, <laughs> and I thought, how am I supposed to do um, a presentation in ten minutes? So I have managed to got, have got a little bit more time. Um, and what I want uh, to do for you uh, in the next sort of 15 minutes at the most is to showcase some of the research that we've been doing in Crete um, and specifically in my area, which is um, Open Languages. There's a, a research group called Open Languages Research Group. Um, and as I say, I'll talk for, I don't know, sort of 10 to 15 minutes and then we have 5 to 10 minutes for questions as well. 
Um, so, let's start us off. So, what um, I've been doing with a colleague um, over the past year um, is a critical review of research that has been going on um, on the role of um, information and communication technology to enhance distance language learning at the OU. So what we've done, and my colleague, uh, and a big thanks to her as well, is uh, Beatriz de los Arcos, uh, who's one of our ex-PhD students, uh, who's now a research fellow in IET. Uh, she and I have actually <coughs> looked at the research that has come out of the OU, out of languages, um, over about 15 years, so a period of 15 years, um, which is actually focused on that topic. We used a conceptual framework, um, which is something developed by Cynthia White, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, this learner context interface, um, and she argues that um, if you look at the introduction of new technologies, you have to look at the learner. It's not enough just to look at the, the development of technology. And the methodology we used um, was we... As I say, we looked at research that has been published and also reports that haven't been published that, but that were accessible to us, analyzed them qualitatively and tried to see what the main, main themes were across those 15 <coughs> years. Um, just three points, very brief points, because we haven't got that much time, about distant language learning and ICT um, I think some of you probably will know more about distance learning than others. Uh, it's, of course, great for students who... Actually, John will have, have this sort of experience. Uh, it's great for people who, who work full-time or who are full-time carers, parents, whatever. Uh, it gives them a, an opportunity to study at the same time, but, of course, it also has quite a lot of challenges. Uh, and the challenges are... Anonymity, people are at a distance from everybody else uh, in terms of language learning where interaction, synchronous interaction is really important. Uh, it's another challenge because people don't meet each other all the time. And therefore, um, in this university and in other universities, uh, we've been trying out various technologies um, to actually help with some of those issues. So we have been looking at various uh, technologies to see which ones actually work, which ones do provide learners with uh, opportunities for interaction uh, and help students to not just learn the language but also interact at a social level um, and meet even if it is only online. And also because most of our students do actually <coughs> work, quite a lot of them work full-time, to give them some flexible learning opportunities. In the past, um, there were always face-to-face -face tutorials, albeit not uh, very frequently, um, but quite often people couldn't go because they had other commitments, so actually providing them with asynchronous tools is quite a useful thing. I said at the beginning that I would uh, say a bit more about what White has actually looked into, uh, she's been researching distance language learning, she's based um, in New Zealand, and she's been researching distance le language learning for the past at least 15 years. And one of the criticisms that she's had, and this is from the uh, 
beginning of a book of hers um, where she says, the field of distance language learning is often narrowly conceptualized as the development of technology-mediated language learning opportunities. Um, and that's why I said at the beginning, uh, what she then says is that there isn't enough focus on the learner and on the learner within that technology context. Now, just a, a sort of a few words about the, the theoretical framework that tends to inform quite a lot of the research that goes on uh, in, in languages here at the OU. So, on the one hand, it's second language acquisition principles, and those of you who've ever looked into or have anything had to do with language learning, um, there are people like uh, Steve Krashen, who's, um, who was really... Uh, one of the key figures in the 1990s um, who looked at the role of input. So that's the materials and the language that learners get from their teachers, from their peers, uh, which then helps them to uh, acquire the language. Then there's interaction, which is the second uh, crucial term in um, second language acquisition theory and then output, so the language that learners then produce as a result of the input the inter and the interaction. And as I say, just a sort of a couple of references there. Vygotsky, I think you've probably all come across um, his focus on interaction um, as being crucial to learning. That's something that we feel is really important for our learners. And then um, sort of following on from uh, Vygotsky, work that uh, Wirtz and others have done about the role of mediation in learning and Wirtz's focus, for example, on the way that new tools that you use actually making an impact on forms of action and on learning. So there's a, there's a, a quote by Levy, I think, Mike Levy, who's one of the sort of... Uh, crucial figures in computer-assisted language learning who says that computers are not neutral tools. They, they make a difference. If you use them, you do things differently and it has an impact uh, on, on interaction. And then the last thing, the sort of importance of context um, that learners are in, um, there's a reference uh, to Leib and Wenger who introduced the notion of the situatedness of the learner. But that's, that's, as I say, it's a very sort of quick rush through uh, some of the theory. What I want to start off with, even though this is not supposed to then um, mean that what we have been doing is mainly technology and it's the sort of pedagogy tagged on, uh, but just to sort of uh, talk you through the various possibilities uh, and the various tools that we have tried out in the department to see whether those tools could actually help us with giving learners the opportunity for interaction and for collaboration. So we tried with the old-fashioned phone, um, so not a very new technology, in the, you can see in the mid-1990s, um, and actually linked up students via a telephone conference, a very sort of early telephone conference, which was quite complex and cumbersome. Um, the... Next thing then was to combine phone and email um, to try and give people not just the opportunity for synchronous interaction but also add an asynchronous element where they could uh, talk to each other um, via the computer. The next tool that was developed at the OU is something called VoxChat which is a, a very simple audio conferencing tool and that was combined with email. 
all these are trials. Um, those, sorry, those sort of first three were all trials that were done with volunteer students. Um, then the um, Open University developed on the back of VoxChat something called Lyceum, which was an audiographic conferencing tool. So it didn't just have audio, but it also had a whiteboard uh, and a concept map and a text chat. And that was trialed first, and then once the trials had shown that people did feel that they were getting something out of it in terms of um, interaction, it was introduced, it was mainstreamed uh, in the early 2000s. There was also video conferencing that we tried out, a flash meeting that's a tool developed in KMI, uh, the Knowledge Media Institute, uh, also within the OU. It was something that was only trialed. Uh, it was never mainstreamed because the university then decided, sorry, and I'll talk about Moodle in a minute, decided to go for Illuminate um, a few years ago, which was then used for all language courses, and Illuminate is now being replaced by, oh, and I've forgotten what it's called, but it's um, Illuminate has now been bought by Blackboard, and they've now got a, a sort of a new tool, but I think it follows on from Illuminate. And Moodle, yes, Moodle was something that the OU introduced, again, in the sort of early to mid-2000s, um, and that didn't just give um, students the opportunity to actually talk to each other via a synchronous conference, but it also uh, introduced other tools such as forums, blogs, um, and so on. And we are, at the moment, looking into new tools, so there are some of my colleagues who are looking into, um, who are looking into the use of mobile technologies, for example. Um, there's one project on mobile blogs, uh, there's one team that is actually trying out MOOCs, um, so various tools that are being trialed at the moment. So I say that's just a very brief overview of the sort of development of, of technology and the, and the technologies that we have been trying to use and then also that we have introduced uh, for our students. Now, and on the back of all this, um, there has been a lot of research into developing suitable pedagogies um, well, first of all, to try out what the tools are actually suitable in the first place and then to develop suitable pedagogies. And this is a, a Wordle that I did on the basis of the publications oh, between, I think, 1999 and 2010 or 11, 11 I think it was, um, with all the um, publications coming out of... Hello, come in all the publications uh, coming out of um, the Open Languages Research Group. And you can see language learning, yes, um, which is the biggest one, but then you can also see distance, um, so the whole, the whole issue of distance learning uh, left-hand left side at the top. There's online, so there are sort of some of the, the issues uh, and some of the topics that we've been covering. Now, just a few words about uh, White's model of this learner context interface. So it's a framework which brings together, as I said, definitely the learners, but it also uh, brings the perspectives of the teachers and researchers to the picture. And for us, when we looked at the research um, that has been going on in, in the Department of Languages and the Open Languages Research Group, it was useful for us because it sort of showed 
the mediation of learning through tools, uh, this, this learner context interface. And White, you, you've got sort of a bit of a quote uh, from her, one of her articles. She, um, she defines the learner dimension, or she gives examples there as individual attributes of the learner's conceptualizations, affects, skills, and needs. And then the context she describes as the feature of the distance learning course, access to other target language sources, and the features of the different sites in which the learning is carried out. And the context doesn't just include the various environments that are used, but it also includes things like the materials that that students are given, um, in our case, self-study materials uh, in the main, and it also includes the teachers and what they do with the students in the tutorials um, and outside the tutorials. So, as I say, it's a, it's a model that tries to link the learner into the context and doesn't just see the, the technology as the main focus. Um, and now, just a few... And as I say, I'm sorry to sort of rush you through this. Um, just a few of the findings that we have come across when we were looking at um, at the publications, trying to find themes um, that come out, and some of the things that yes, people um, have have worked on um, in not in no particular order, um, but I've sort of classified them under various headings. So the first one is environment, and by that I mean actually um, things like the affordances of certain environments, so what certain environments allow you to do and how they actually change what you do when you compare it with a face-to-face situation or a a sort of a conventional uh, writing situation and so on. Um, And that's why I've got as the first point, uh, as a sort of a heading, the fact that computer-mediated interaction has an impact on communication. That's why I said at the beginning, um, computers are not neutral tools. They do actually make a difference to how we communicate. And so you've got multimodal environments such as Flash Meeting or Illuminate, um, which make quite a lot of cognitive demands. Um, and the demands are, they might not be, there might not be more of them, but they're different to face-to-face communication. If you talk to somebody um, via Illuminate, for example. You can have a text chat going on, so you have to look at the text chat while possibly talking to somebody via the audio. You might have pictures on the whiteboard um, that the the teacher is asking you to take in and so on. And then you have icons sort of popping up, um, which I think is what quite a lot of young learners are used to, but I think adult learners do find that uh, more difficult Yes, different affordances, so you have various tools with different affordances and our research has focused on on that and has looked at um, various tools and what they allow the learners to do. And then some of the sort of issues that uh, colleagues have focused on, so the lack of body language, if you've only got audio but not video conferencing, how do do you compensate for that? Uh, How do you deal with the disembodied space uh, where you can't see people... um, or even in video conferencing where there's a time lag and uh, things aren't always as clear as you have them when, you, when you're when you in a face-to-face meeting. Um, impact on discourse, discourse changes if you've got text chat um, plus audio. 
and then the whole the whole impact on all that on learner participation where some students just opt out and either don't come to the tutorials or sort of sit uh, in the back seat and don't really participate. The next, um, oh, and I've got not a lot of time left, so the next um, big area that we've been focusing on is on tasks. How do you actually design activities that are appropriate for the environment? Uh, they need to, on the one hand, develop people's language and linguistic skills, but they also need to help students to develop their literacy skills um, and they should, because of the sort of anonymity in, in online conferences, they should also give socio-effective support. Teachers, as I said earlier, teachers is a really important part in the uh, learner context interface. So we've been looking at the changing roles of teachers. They're more of a facilitator rather than a sort of somebody who transmits knowledge, a co-learner. Um, we've been trying to... Um, support our teachers to try and implement student-centered learning rather than tutor-led learning. Uh, that's, that builds uh, communities. I've already mentioned literacy. Um, that's something where the teachers play a major role. Um, and then the whole area of teacher training where a colleague and I have done quite a bit of work, um, how you actually train teachers to teach online. Um, and there isn't a lot sort of at least in the area of language learning at the moment. Some of the lessons learned, so new literacies as a really important issue both for teachers and for learners. There are the social and effective factors that um, if you want to introduce online learning, you have to deal with, especially with older <coughs> adult learners. Um, the whole question of how to integrate online activities into <coughs> into the assessment, uh, do you actually assess what people do online? Um, I've talked about the importance of training and support. And then the, the, whole, the whole question, well, how do you introduce ICT? We've been trying to do it as an iterative process. So we've run trials, done studies, learned from the results, done another trial, uh, and then if it was successful, then mainstream the tool. Um, so it is always something that develops further, and that's why I said at the beginning we're also looking at new tools now to see what other things we can use to sort of combine uh, what we have at the moment. So, as I say, sorry that was a bit sort of of a fast run-through, um, but I, I thought I should try and at least sort of stick to the time. I don't know, any comments or questions that you've got? Maria. Uh, when you say student-centered, do you uh, focus like on giving them educational uh, resources and material or using flexible um, lesson plans? Both, probably. Um, because our students are distance students, they already get a lot of materials anyway. So we do try and actually almost train the students to become autonomous learners. So that's something that is built into the materials that people are, as they almost taught, to develop their own strategies for, I don't know, keeping motivated, for keeping going and all that, uh, all those issues um, around distance learning. And yes, also your sort of second point that we try to incorporate it into lesson plans. What we've actually done with all these new tools, we've given our tutors um, materials that they can use 
for their classes. So when they have a session, um, for example, on Illuminate, a one-hour tutorial session, they get materials from us and they can then adapt those materials to whatever suits them and what suits their class uh, and their group. But what we also do, and that's probably a sort of a third um, feature, is that <clears throat> we encourage the students to actually try and work in groups so that there isn't just the, the sort of autonomy that you have studying by yourself, but what is called group autonomy, that people are actually used to working with peers and not always with a teacher or by themselves. So teacher not teacher-led, but sort of student-led uh, in that respect. Fine. So it might be very hard to tease apart because um, other things have changed as well. But I wonder if there's anything you can say about the changes in assessment that have gone... So have the changes in technology had an impact on how people think about assessment? It's been very slow um, at the Open University, at least in our neck of the woods. Um, and um, a colleague, another colleague, um, Christine Pleines, and I um, produced a new Level 2 German course, which started, I think the first presentation was in 2009, and that was when Moodle became available with all the sort of various tools um, that are available now. And what we were trying to do was actually to integrate some of the tools, at least, into the assessment, so, and it was it was relatively limited. What we what we tried to do was, uh, we tried to get students to interact via the forum, and then we were going to try and see whether we couldn't somehow link that into the assessment. However, the department wasn't really. I think they they quite weren't quite happy with that, and they felt that the online elements shouldn't be assessed. So we sort of did some kind of a compromise. Um, what we did was that we had a number of activities that were very clearly labelled as related to the assessment, but they weren't assessed themselves. So the students were given things that related to the essays that they had to write, and they were then able to discuss these on the forum. And then the forum work wasn't assessed, but we were hoping that the discussions that they had online actually would feed into the assessment. And I think that has actually happened. And I think the OU now is moving more towards assessment um, of online activities. Although I think in the Department of Languages, colleagues are still relatively conservative. Um, but I think it's been quite a, a slow process. But I think you're right. I think assessment is quite crucial. And I think that's when Christine and I did a study um, of how students took up the online activities. That was one of the clear findings that if you wanted, if you want students to participate, you do need to assess. John, I'm really to very quickly. Um, I thought it was really interesting. One of the things you were talking about was in essence the medium was the message. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's very Toronto school. It's very yes. Toronto school in the way that they think about things, and that's something that's very challenging, not really. It's quite, and, and I was thinking about how that would be taken about, obviously because I don't think in terms of secondary education, because I think they would find what you're saying unbelievably challenging uh, in terms of the way that they approach new, new technologies. Okay. Because they see, it as, they see it as essentially replacing. You know, it, I, I think you know, it's like just take, take, you know, take what we're doing, particularly in terms of literacy, take, take, take what we're doing and simply 
add-on factory. It's it's the add-on. It's the plug-in. It's the plug-in model. And it's very much like that. And I think the kind of what you're talking about there, I was just trying to think how do you how do you move to that kind of model in terms of you know I can see I can see in terms of distance learning, particularly with adults. Although you said you were saying it's a challenge a challenge with adults, the huge difficulty is how do you bridge that with. Uh, in, second, in secondary and primary education, how do you bridge that? Where the, where the challenge is not with young people, but the challenge is with us as teachers. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, where we just say, well, let's just plug it in. Let's just plug the iPad in and get the, and then it's done. But I that actually, that it's a quite different literacy. Yeah. We're adding a new literacy to what's being done. And, and we can't simply do that and, and, and expect that it will work. I think it's training and awareness raising is really, really important. Yeah. I'm part of a project um, that is funded by uh, ECML, the European Centre for Modern Languages, and we're doing a whole uh, suite of training workshops for teachers in various countries. And I think it's training and just making people aware that they can't just continue with the activities that they've used for donkeys and, and just plonk them online and, and expect for, for things to happen in the same way. So I think, yes, training yeah. and awareness raising. I would like to ask a question, oh, yes. but I'm not sure whether to use my prerogative as organiser to extend your time by a couple of minutes. <laughs> That's quite I clever. will, because it's giving, it's giving Maria a chance to get a cup of coffee. Okay. I just want to ask, then, following on from Joe, to what extent are your, your kind of um, interventions, your, your, your child's driven by language learning theory, mm -hmm. and to what extent by the affordances of technology, and how do you balance those? It's not too many questions. Yeah, it's, that's quite a tricky one, and I think the two have to, in a way, go hand in hand. So I think our what sparked the initial research um, that's been going on in the Department of Languages was the need to try and get students to interact more with each other rather than each student sitting at home uh, with their... They used to get a big box of materials from the OU with all their books and their whatever videos and, and all the things they had uh, and then go to a tutorial once a month or once every six weeks and if they missed it, they missed it and they couldn't go for another sort of six months, uh, six weeks. And so for us, the initial impetus was to try and give people just the chance to meet up uh, and to even, even yes, online, um, but to meet up and to talk to each other, to build a community a bit more, um, to interact in the, in the target language. Um, but as I say, also sort of try and get over that uh, anonymity that I think characterizes a lot of distance learning. And so the, the sort of interaction, I think, came first and then... It's the, the tools that we were trying to, to trying out. But then, of course, you do have to deal with all the affordances that comes with the various tools, and then you have to try and train the teachers. So it's, it's, I think, again, it's a sort of an iterative um, process, which is what I was trying to say um, at the end, that I think you can't just do one without the other, but it, it sort of influences each other. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Okay. Maria, are you ready? <laughs> well, ready or not? Shall I go and talk to you with you? Oh, yes, I'm It is open here. Is that one? Yeah. Or is it that one? Yes. Good morning. 
My name is Maria Aristidou and I am a PhD student in Institute of Educational Technology. And today I will talk uh, about the general context of my research and I will focus on the design of my pilot study. As you can see from the title, I'm looking at the open inquiry learning, which has three main aspects in my research, inquiry learning, online social networking, and citizen science. So this is the outline of my presentation. We will, we will first check the uh, theoretical background of my research and the problem definition, the aim of the research, and then we will focus on the research question and the methodology of my pilot study. So to start with, what is citizen science? Uh, citizen science is scientific research conducted by amateur uh, scientists in whole or in part uh, who partner with scientists in a project. And the aim of citizen science usually is to produce more science or to solve real-world real problems. Uh, although citizen science is a trend now, it's so popular, it dates back to 1900. But the modern citizen science projects are divided into two categories, the distributed computing research uh, uh, projects and the distributed thinking projects. The distributed computing projects harness the CPU power of the public when their computers are idle, and, but still connected to the internet. And in contrast, the distributed thinking projects use the knowledge and the understanding of citizens involving them in the project, actively in the project. Um, citizen science projects can also be divided in other categories in relation to their goals. For example, a citizen science project may have as goal to educate people or to um, conserve the environment. And also, they can be divided um, in relation to the activities the citizens have to do in the project. For example, some projects need the citizens to collect some data or to analyze some data, or even to add some observations. We have two examples of well-known citizen science projects, which are Galaxy Zoo and iSpot. Galaxy Zoo is an astronomy citizen science project uh, in which the volunteers classify galaxies by looking at their pictures, and they use this interactive application and iSpot is an open university citizen science project in which citizens take pictures of plants or small animals. They attach the pictures on the iSpot platform and with the help of the experts, they try to identify uh, what animal or what plant that is. So why is citizen science important in my study? 70% uh, of the population in UK agree that government and scientists should listen to people uh, think to what people think about uh, science. So, in order for the people to be able to express their opinion in scientific issues, they need to be scientifically literate. 
and citizen science facilitates scientific literacy by involving people in research in investigations. So how can a person become scientifically literate? Inquiry-based learning may help in this. Inquiry is a term that you used, you used uh, in the past to describe the idea of teaching science in the way it is um, it, it, it is used by scientists. For example, at, uh, having your own research questions, finding your methods, your procedures, and at the end, you are able to express and explain your results in light of other inquiries. Personal Inquiry Project is a project that run by the Open University and the University of Nottingham and was based on personal-based inquiry. So uh, Healthy Eating is one of the projects of the, of the personal inquiry. And inquiry tool was created to guide uh, students in uh, helping them understanding themse themselves and the world. So the inquiry tool provided the steps for uh, the inquiry process. So each student could, could have his personal inquiry by choosing a question related to, its, to his or her diet and with the guidance of the tool could reach a conclusion and after that they could share their conclusions with the other uh, students. Um, Statistics showed that one-third of the people in UK were put off science at school. And more than the half of the population in UK believe that they are not informed about science. And also one-third of the population in UK uh, believe that they are not clever enough to understand science. So that raises the need to uh, improve some models on learning science. One approach that emerged in relation to the lack of scientific literacy was public engagement with science. Uh, and it was used for the better interaction between citizens and scientists in scientific research. So they could exchange and knowledge, methods, and research questions. But uh, citizen science facilitates the, the public engagement with science, and there are many levels of participation uh, according to each citizen science, citizen science project. For example, in contributory citizen science projects, citizens are participating in only one of the phase of the research investigation, while in collaborative they can participate in more than one, for example, data collection and data analysis. And there, there is also a third type of citizen science project co-created where people, citizens and scientists participate and jointly design the whole uh, project.
So the aim of my research is to facilitate citizens to run their own investigation by uh, to engage them in uh, scientific investigation by facilitating them to run their own investigation and at the same time they have the opportunity to collaborate with scientists. And this will form a new uh, um, technology-mediated learning model, which is called citizen inquiry. To test out the sustainability of citizen inquiry, in my, in my pilot study, I will involve amateur geologists in investigation of rocks, and the three, the three basic aspects of my pilot study will be the inquiry process, the collaboration between the participants, even if are experts or no experts, and the geology, which will be the theme of my pilot study. So my research question is, can amateur scientists, in our case geologists, engage in successful inquiry-based learning through peer collaboration, mentoring by geologists in informal settings? To answer my research question, I will conduct my research through a design-based research method um, which I will use to analyze the interactions of the participants with the tools, the activities, and the other participants. And at the end, I will use the results to inform the design of the pilot of the study for my main study. And of course, the, the pilot study will be based on the, on the pedagogy of citizen inquiry. For example, the participants will be able to use, to run their own investigation, which is um, sparked by their personal experience from the world, and will be able to uh, lead the inquiry as they want. So to do this, they will have available the inquiry platform, which, be the tool, which will be the tool that I will implement my pilot study. And the most important tool they will have in the inquiry platform is the authoring tool, which will give them the opportunity to upload pictures, to create their own inquiries, to join somebody else's inquiries, and to use some integrated in the inquiry tools, some integrated tools in the inquiry platform to um, uh, help them in analyzing or collecting data. Um, so. The next step was to recruit participants to use the pedagogy and the technology of my research. Uh, the recruitment of the participants is, taking, is still taking place through communities related to uh, geology or citizen science. So by now I have advertisements in iSpot and OU Geological Society, RockSoc, even on Intranet. And before the participants log in the inquiry platform for first time, some of my colleagues uh, volunteered to uh, give a first drive test of the platform by using the inquiry tools so they can give us some feedback on the inquiry platform and my evaluation methods. So after that, we can adjust the tools if there is a need to adjust the tools and create some 
video tutorials um, so we can help the induction of the participants to the platform. These are some pictures of some aspects of my pilot study. At the top is the authoring tool and on the left we can see the steps of the inquiry process, the available steps, and on the right we can see the tools. Uh, here is the virtual microscope, for example, and there is an uploaded picture of a rock. So we have the advertisement leaflet that I'm using to recruit participants and the rock identification key, which is one of the educational material the the participants are suggested to use if they want to identify their rock samples. So what is the next step? Um, the platform, the, the pilot study will run for two weeks, but the inquirer platform will remain active for the people who want to um, continue uh, their inquiries. So at the end of the second week, the participants will be sent two questionnaires. The first questionnaire is related to their experience with the platform and the tools and their interaction with the other participants. And the second questionnaire will be, uh, will be mainly used, for the, used to give us some feedback on the usability of the inquire tools synergy. And also we will have one questionnaire for the one or two most active uh, experts so they can evaluate some of the inquiries as successful or not. And for the last, for the last, the last step of the evaluation method, uh, there is an invitation for on a, an online focus group discussion where participants will give us some feedback on the general idea and study. And the online focus group discussion may run in more than one languages because by now we have participants from many countries. So after I analyze the evaluation, uh, analyze the results of the evaluation, I will need to redesign the project for the main study which will begin uh, in my second year. I hope I will get there. <laughs> so this is the summary of my study. Uh, aspects from citizen science, aspects from inquiry-based learning lead to uh, citizen inquiry, which in combination with the science, in my case is geology, and an online social networking, which is inquire, uh, leads to inquiry rock hunters, which is the name of my pilot study. Thank you. Excellent, excellent, lovely. Have we any questions? Yeah, I do. Um, I really liked my room, by the way. I think there is one thing, one query I have, which is that you use the word scientist. And, and you mentioned scientists a lot. Uh, and I, but I, I wasn't clear how you were using that word, because the examples all come from very specific types of scientific inquiry. In fact, it's quite a narrow focus scientific inquiry because you show you show people effectively um, staring at stars collecting rocks and cataloguing flowers and that's all from the positivist end of scientific inquiry and it, so the, the examples are all quite narrow based I mean I'm not sure as an ethnographer how, how my, my end of science because I'm a scientist too but I'm not sure how my end of science would fit into this 
do, do, do you know what I mean? Uh, because those were those all three of those examples were, were from a very specific were from a very specific area of scientific inquiry and have a very particular a very particular I suppose. Um, um, uh, uh, for, for, uh, you know, have a very particular view of our scientific inquiry, and so I was just interested: is there a broader range of within citizen science? Is there a broader range than that? Because that, that seems to me quite a narrow range. Not, not your work in itself. I just meant I'm just interested in terms of citizen science, which I hadn't heard of before. I'm quite interested in it now. Is it is it, 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 it is it broader, or is it or does it tend to come from from the more positivist end? Well. Uh, citizen science is quite complicated because there are citizen science projects of uh, various categories. For example, in Galaxy Zoo, um, they have some pictures from uh, from NASA, I think so. So they need to categorize these pictures, but because the pictures are millions, they cannot do it by themselves. So they take advantage of the citizens' uh, desire to learn more about space or if they have, if they like uh, doing something in relation to, with astronomy. And so they somehow take advantage of this and they use the citizens to have some classification of the pictures. And so there are other citizen science projects which are uh, like they have a task to educate people or to map an area. But still, um, you, you said something about scientists. No, I, I'm just interested. For instance, Galaxy Zoo is great, but do they also have a project where, for instance, people are cataloging their responses to songs with the word stars in it? So maybe I can answer a little bit more outside. Some of the citizen science projects are like more like a game, just for fun. Yeah. So it's not always like they have the same goal. It's not always they want to answer a research question or they want to um, they want to educate people or they want to do this and that. It, ma it can be just for fun. There is also a citizen science project like for um, money, crowd money sourcing. Like I just want to look it up now. I'm really interested. To find money to create a research project. And I mean, this is considered a citizen science project somehow. So, so there is more. Yeah, that's Yeah, there is a broad. So, Mike. So, I mean, in its broadest sense, citizen science is about people coming together to explore the natural or the creative world. Um, and it ranges, yes, from very uh, constrained um, classification projects like Galaxy Zoo. At the other end, there is a community in Suffolk where they are, um, have, it's been going on since 1996 now, where they are encouraging people to come to that community to try and understand the community. Um, it includes doing archaeological digs. Um, uh, it includes um, trying to engage in the natural history of the community. Uh, it includes trying to understand the social history of it. So it's a collective coming to understand. Um, so, um, so any project that involves a mass of people trying to understand the natural or constructive phenomenon could be seen as citizen science. Um, more or less organized. Uh, I think there is a lack of projects at the more um, ethnographic, social science end, and I think there's a real opportunity to try and explore what science means in that space. I like the challenge. 
like in relation to the scientist uh, thing you said, I had a problem in identifying who are professionals and non-professionals because it's a really huge aspect of citizen science. But uh, while talking with geologists, I realized that even if they have like a PhD in geology, um, not okay, not a PhD, maybe a bachelor degree or a master's degree, some of them they don't consider themselves as professionals. So this is another thing I need to check: what exactly is a professional and what not. I mean. Well, isn't that part of the fun when you suddenly make those, those sudden insights when you're doing part of the pilots and everything changes because something something comes up? That's wonderful. Thank you. I love it. Yes, please. I'm sorry. I'm just I teach psychology and it strikes me it's a similar kind of issue to geology because we we don't operate in one paradigm in psychology. There's nine or fifteen different perspectives about how we explore and study human behaviour. At the one end it is extremely positivistic, and the other end it's very technographic. Um, so are you doing this to try and encourage engagement from these masses of British people that don't understand science? Is that one of the aims of citizen science science project? Uh, yes, the aim of the project is to improve the scientific literacy of people by engaging them in um, in a real investigation which uh, will derive from their own experience. So they will have some interest on this research. It will not be like, a, I want to contribute to somebody else's uh, research. So they will have their own research and they will try to find out with their own way, of course, with the help of the tools and the experts, and conclude somewhere. But this kind of conflicts with the idea of a paradigm, doesn't it? Because a paradigm is where all the practitioners agree on the rules, laws, how things operate. So you're actually saying these people could challenge the kind of scientific paradigm at the end of the day, with their knowledge base. So you're talking about knowledge bases in society, you know, what's valid and what isn't, maybe. Yeah, but knowledge is created. I mean, they are able to create the knowledge through their interaction with the platform and all the aspects of the platform. So yes, I agree with that, but, say, physics or chemists, they all agree on the way things operate, don't they? They don't have that... Well, it's me. Physics, I should do. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is rude, but generally, I, I kind of, it conflicts in my head because when we're teaching developmental psychology, we're now saying that our Piaget, you, are you familiar with discovery learning, Piaget? The idea in schools was that you let children discover scientific learning by just playing, you know, pouring sand, water, they will come to scientific principles. We're now arguing education that no, that was mistaken. It's okay to work on bait, but then you have to teach scientific principles. So we go to Vygotsky and you know other socio-cultural theorists. I mean, I don't know if you're in school if you're familiar with that shift. So I'm kind of confused in my mind about where the kind of pedagogy of learning fits in and how it matches up to the paradigms that have been going for years in positivistic science. Uh, do you want to say something on that? It's your session, so it was, it was in response actually, but it was also a question for you because I think what, what was interesting to me when you were talking is thinking, well, how will you define that success that you had in your research question? 
And what seemed really interesting was this idea of the identity of people being involved in the project. What you were saying is that they don't see themselves as scientists, or a lot of people in the UK don't see themselves as being able to do science. And what's really interesting about this is, does that change as they go through your, your projects? Does that, at the, at the outcome of it, is that identity of, I am somebody who can do science? Has that changed? Has that kind of got stronger? And in a way, that's where the kind of um, the link, I think, there is. Mm. But it's not really about whether the science is right or wrong. It's about the identity of the person and who they think that they are, which actually is a kind of social science thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. not scientific. Okay, in, in, in relation to the success of uh, if uh, an inquiry is successful or not, uh, we will have some um, aspects of a successful inquiry uh, from papers. So we will use this like it will be like tick boxing. Like uh, is the research question uh, framed okay? I mean. Did they use the proper methods to reach to reach to their conclusions? And how was, uh, for example, um, did they do right analysis of their data? So we will have some standard. It's not just like uh, somebody who believes he's an expert and he will he or she will judge if it's it was successful or not. But can, can I ask it on that same same note? If that's if that's what you deem as an, a successful inquiry, is the pro, is your project only going to be seen as a success if those inquiries are, are successful? So if, if the people feel like oh I did science it was great even if they all failed, could that that project would you see that still as a failure? Uh, no, because the valuation of the project is not only about the um, learning out, it's not about only the conclusions of each inquiry, if it was right or wrong. It's also about the interactions between uh, the professionals, non-professionals, and in between par participants. It's not only the inquiry thing, it's also the interaction and the technology. If they were able to use technology, if they find it easy to use the technology, if they want some more tools in order to uh, do their inquiries. So uh, success, successful inquiries is only one of the aspects in my evaluation. Can I just say how you, are participants, how naive do they have to be? How naive do they have to be in relation to students? Well, by now I have uh, researchers, I have people who work as geologists, I have people who have a bachelor in geology but uh, they work in some other field. And also I have people who are just interested in geology because of climbing, hiking or other uh, hobbies they have. And also I have some people who they just uh, had some modules in geology in Northern University and they want to learn some more. Absolutely, they've already been exposed to kind of scientific ideas. Not all of them. For example, the people who just went to the beach and collect rocks, yeah. uh, they are not exposed, but they have the curiosity to learn some more. And also I had some uh, underage people who wanted to participate because they went for a they went to a trip with their school, but my ethics uh, permission doesn't allow it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
involved them in my in my pilot. So yeah, so we would have participants from like all the experts. Can, can I just jump in here? I'm really sorry, but it, we, that, it's uh, obvious that everyone is really very fascinated by this. Um, perhaps we could continue the discussion when we have our coffee break. So, in, in a, a, a fit of bravery or foolishness, <laughs> we have now a presentation coming to us live from Japan. Uh, and we have here Theron Muller, Muller sorry, who's coming to us um, through the, the graces of Google. Uh, and he's going to do his presentation for us. And we have some marvellous technology in the middle, which will allow us all to ask him questions at the end. So here goes. Take it away, Theron. All right. Thanks very much, Maya. Before I get started, I just want to thank Maya and Joe for their uh, time and effort in um, getting the technology set up for this. I think for every minute of the presentation, you have the joy of hearing today. There's probably 30 minutes of uh, preparation that have gone behind it. So uh, I'm a part-time student with Crete, and um, my supervisors are Teresa Lillis and Ann Hewings. And then my um, day job is on teaching English on the medical faculty at the University of Toyama, um, where I'm primarily responsible for teaching um, English for specific purposes to future doctors, pharmacists, and nurses. But uh, my research is um, looking at language teachers writing for academic publication. And um, after my last consultation, the task that was put to me by the supervisors was to take the research questions that I'm hoping to ask in my own dissertation and my own investigation and go visit the literature and see how they've been handled in the literature. And um, I was told as part of that consultation that um, doing this kind of critically visiting the literature to see how the questions have been handled and to describe what's unique about what I'm doing is part of that requirement of the PhD to make a unique contribution to knowledge. And while I'm still not quite comfortable with that idea, that unique contribution to knowledge sounds a little bit too highbrow for me to say that's what I'm aiming for, that's um, what I'll be trying to do in my presentation today. Just in case you're wondering where I am, <laughs> that's where I am in Japan. And um, if you think about Japan as a backwards L, uh, where I am in Toyama is right at the crook of the L. And if you want a sense of perspective, just have to wait for the slides to change. There we go. If you want a sense of perspective, that's how far away I am. So that's how far my voice is traveling to get to you today. I tried to get cycling directions from Google, but it wouldn't let me get bicycle or car directions from Japan to uh, the UK. So I guess that technology is still pending. So um, this is the format of my presentation. Um, the title says research questions, but with uh, the 17 minutes that I have left, I'll concentrate on one question because I know it's right before lunch. And um, oftentimes when I go to one day conferences, this is kind of the longest haul of the day for me, the 30 minute presentation that I have to get through the blood sugars collapsing on me. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of look at a main question that I'm asking and then um, consider how I'm operationalizing it as uh, a sub-question. Um, and then we'll go to the literature, visit um, some of the literature that's closest to the investigation I'm doing, offer uh, Critical commentary, not critical commentary, sorry about the typo there. 
and then um, discuss how my questions are hopefully going to build up current understanding and potentially expand existing theoretical models. And then picking the most discussed question from my last consultation, um, which will hopefully give me an idea of how far I've come, and then based on the question session, you guys can give me an idea of how much further I have to go before that question's going to be finalized. So the research question that I'm going to today is, um, why do early career Japan-based language teachers write for academic publication? Um, just some vocabulary, just to kind of set the scene. By early career, I'm referring to them being early in the range of their publishing careers, not necessarily their teaching careers. Um, I say Japan-based because I've got two groups. I've got Japanese nationals, and then I've got non-Japanese who are based in Japan, both as participants, and so I have the chance to compare those two groups and see what similarities and differences are between them. I'll get into that a bit later. And then, um, as far as action goes, I'm considering academic publications to be what they tell me they're doing in terms of writing for academic publications. So rather than going out and trying to find a kind of definition out there, I'm relying on my participants to explain to me what they consider to be academic publication. So why do, that's kind of a big question, difficult to operationalize. So to make it a bit more specific, um, in the kind of interviews that I'm going to be doing with participants, the operationalized question, the sub-question is, what reasons do participants identify for writing for academic publication? And then I've cheated, there's three questions up there. So um, going from that, what relationship is there between the reasons they ascribe in interviews and then information from documentary texts? So for example, if there's an advertisement for a job position that somebody's trying to apply for, what are the requirements listed in that um, job listing versus what are the reasons that uh, my participants are saying for trying to publish academically. And then finally, um, I'm going to be collecting data over the course of somewhere between one and two or three years. So another question I'm asking is whether their reasons for writing for academic publication change over the course of the investigation. A lot of my participants are on contract positions. So, for example, they have a one-year contract renewable up to three times. Then they have to go look for another job. So what I'm kind of curious about is when their contract's coming up for renewal, is that changing kind of their motivation, what they say their motivations are for publishing. The closest thing to my research that I can find in the literature is Curry and Lillis's investigation um, which is ethnographic in nature, talking with scholars. And um, I really like their, their usage of words is really poetic to me sometimes. So like the uh, academic writing and publishing practices of scholars who use English while working and writing in countries where languages other than English are the official medium of communication. Because um, kind of the bugbear of a lot of this research is the distinction between native speakers and non-native it really has really been illustrated as quite problematic describing people that way. So you end up with um, language that's trying to set the scene without characterizing people as speakers of a particular language or non-native speakers of a particular language. And I don't want to get too much into their findings, but I'm not going to assume that everybody has a deep background in this. So just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that they're doing, just take 10 seconds and read that. 
Joe, you're on the screen, so can you nod when you're done reading? I'll use you as my timer. <laughs> you're done? Yeah, I read very quickly. Just so you know. I'm on the sentence too. Okay, all right. I so need to I'll, I'll assume call. everybody else reads very quickly. Wait. Okay, that's been about 20 seconds, so I hope that most people have kind of gotten through that. But what you can see is they're having conversations with scholars, and they're talking to them about the decisions they make, specifically regarding um, where, what languages they choose to publish in. And you can see there that this participant has kind of three different communities that he's aiming for. One is kind of the practice-based community. Another is um, the academic psychology community in Hungary. And then another community is the um, international English medium scholarly community. And, and this, done this kind of investigation, primarily in Europe, um, this particular 2004 paper, if I remember right, was Hungary, which is up here on the screen, Spain, and um, scholars based in Slovakia. And they've, they've included a number of other scholars and other publications of theirs. Um, but that gives you an idea of the kinds of things that they're looking at. And what I want to consider are kind of the models of inquiry that they've been using so far, and specifically where I think that um, my research might be different or unique, or you know, try and address that requirement of the PhD to be, you know, um, adding to knowledge rather than replicating research, rather than simply replicating research that's come before. Three things that I want to discuss are context, the models of community that have been operationalized in the research, and then finally issues of experience in academic publishing. With respect to context, I'll give you guys another 10 seconds to read the Flower and Lee quote here. So that was 10 seconds. Um, What's interesting here is how you have kind of Flowerdew and Lee are doing a similar kind of investigation in China, a similar kind of investigation to Curry and Lillis earlier. They're doing it in China, and they talk about how China has the official language is Chinese, and there's an interesting, you know, potentially competing relationship between English and Chinese, and that's what makes it interesting for them to research that context. And with that in mind, kind of different contexts that have been covered in the literature are up there on the screen. Um, Japan isn't as well covered in terms of having groups of participants whose data is drawn on in order to draw conclusions regarding publication decisions. Um, some people in Japan, there's like individual scholars who are pursuing publication, who write about their experiences, but you don't have kind of that group research that you get from some other contexts. That said, I've been reading... Um, Dunleavy's authoring a PhD, and he um, admonishes people. He says, don't plan on going for uniqueness just because you're the only one that's ever done it, because it's going to take you two or three years to get it done, and somebody can scoop you. So other ways that I'm thinking about context um, in terms of how I might treat it differently from the way the literature has come before is in the literature you have treatment of international scholars who are moving from other countries to the English Academy to study at the graduate or postgraduate level. Um, Turner's 2011 book is an example of that. 
You also have in the literature treatment of international scholars who studied in the English Academy, then returned to their home countries. Um, Flower use Hong Kong research is kind of centered around that, like a scholar who finished his PhD in the U.S., then moved to Hong Kong to take on a professorship. And then there's also, um, like Curry and Lillis' research, international scholars trained and working in their home countries. What I'm thinking about with my research is I've got the Japanese participants and I've got the non-Japanese participants. And so one issue that hasn't been considered as much in the research is that kind of the potential for within-context variation. So oftentimes in Japan, even though it's a problematic term, a lot of jobs are listed as intended for native speakers of English or intended for Japanese teachers. And so it's possible that there could be kind of two different career tracks or the motivations of those two groups may be different. And I also have kind of a mix of backgrounds. I've got some people who studied in Japan and are working in Japan. I've got some people who studied outside of Japan in, say, uh, the U.S. and are working in Japan. And I also have some people who studied with U.K. universities via distance education in Japan for their masters. So there, there's another potential variable there that I haven't quite wrapped my head around, but those are some different groups that I'm thinking about. So next, comes on to the model of community. And I don't want to mischaracterize um, Mary J. Curry and Teresa Lewis's work. In their paper, the 2004 paper, a whole section that problematizes community. Um, but the kind of the dominant models that describe the way scholars approach doing academic publishing is looking at the different communities that they're participating in or that they're members of. And um, three of the communities that are mentioned specifically in Curry and Lillis's paper are discourse community, which is based off of Swales' research, which is kind of described as people writing the things for similar purposes. So you could have like the discourse community of geology scholars or you know specific scientific discipline scholars. Um, there's community of practice, which is based off of business research, primarily Lave and Wenger. And um, what their original research was looking at was how expertise is perpetuated in companies in particular positions, despite the fact that you have staff turnover. So how do those groups perpetuate expertise over time? And they came up with this kind of model of community practice with people at the core who are quite involved and then other people at the periphery. And the idea of people moving from the periphery toward the core of the community through participation. And then finally, you have a model of speech community, which is um, involved with kind of the languages that people speak or the dialects that people speak and the, the community with through that. Um, I got a paper emailed to me this morning from uh, Mary Jane Curry, which was a 2010 paper that she and Teresa Lillis wrote that looked at um, networks and network relationships that unfortunately came too late for me to read for this presentation. But uh, one kind of alternative model that I've been thinking about myself with approaching my own research, kind of a model of, of looking at the way people participate is uh, social worlds. And I promise you these are the last big blocks of text for you to read. I'll give you 10 seconds to read this one.
Okay, hopefully that was enough time. Kasmer and Haythorne Waite aren't looking at scholarly publication. What they're looking at are people enrolled in a distance course and how they how they balance participation in the distance education boards with kind of their other life obligations. But um, I really like that they talked about they they use a social they specifically they intentionally use a social world model rather than a community model, talking about how it describes people who share activity space technology around some activity, um, and then the fact that those worlds intersect and the interaction, the intersection of those worlds is of interest. And then one more block of text here. Ten more seconds to read. So what I like here is the idea that individuals allocate time and resources, and then particularly the last sentence there, it lacks that effective baggage of the often imprecise term community, allows description of activity without necessitating the attainment of intangible group-oriented experience. So a lot of the criticism or discussion of the community discourse is that particularly like the business, the community of practice idea talks about empowering the periphery, the people can move from the periphery to the core, but in a lot of cases there's kind of issues of access that are involved there that don't make it quite that simple. And so perhaps there's other models of, of looking at the way that people participate that would be more compelling. So this is the question I'm asking here is, considering the reasons for publication from the social world's lens, would that yield kind of an interesting new perspective, or is it really community, community, community? And then finally, with my last two minutes, oh, I'm sorry, let me just finish here. This is um, what I showed you before, the example from Teresa Lillis's and Mary Jane Curry's paper, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but just thinking about this from the social world's perspective, I don't have access to their original data, but these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. Perhaps one of the social worlds that IG could be involved in is as a Hungarian clinical practitioner. He's a faculty member. He or she's a faculty member. So as a researcher, there's there's kind of there's the tension. He's part of the social world, the research social world, and there's a tension of access, getting access to funding. Um, there's also teaching staff, practitioner, trainer. Um, a member of the Hungarian research world, and then also a member of the international research world. Like, and then where those intersect would be of interest in terms of um, thinking about it from this perspective. And then finally, I really do only have 90 seconds left. Looking at experience, most of the literature that I've seen so far tends to look at quite experienced academics. So um, Mary Jane Curry and Teresa Lillis, most of the people in their research have been professors at university for 10 years, years, years a few less than that. And then Flowerdew and Lee, in their paper, they didn't report experience, but they reported age in the, in the first 40s, 50s, 60s. They didn't have people. Um, they didn't have as many people that were younger. And so there's also research that it's writing for academic coursework, but it doesn't seem to think, it doesn't seem to investigate writing for publication as much as writing for assessment on courses. So, with my research, looking at people who are at the beginning of their academic writing careers, I'm wondering if 
reports of how experienced academics come to understand the academic writing communities or social worlds without whichever model you want to use, how they kind of understand what they do would differ from the experiences of those who are relatively new to writing for academic publication, who are trying to seek their first publications is the perspective of the people who are new to it quite different from the perspective of people who have been doing it for a while who perhaps molded a world that fits a model that the younger academics aren't necessarily experiencing. Thank you very much. I'm happy. I think we've got 10 minutes for questions. We have some. Are you hearing me? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Excellent. Would you like to show show us your face? Would you like to get... Yes, excellent. Good. Okay, so any questions for Theron? And you'll notice when you do ask a question, the magic of the camera should put your face next to Theron's. Isn't that amazing? Okay, go for it. (laughs) We've all got a bit obsessed with the technology, Theron. Thank you very much for the presentation, though. That was very clear. Yeah, thank you. So, questions? Yeah, Regina. Hi, Theron. Good to see you. Um, Theron, can I ask you a question yeah. about, about your research questions? Um, I didn't quite understand the second sub-questions, and I was wondering whether you could just run us through uh, that one again, what you actually meant by those sort of two sides. I think it was documents and own practice, I think. Uh, not this one? We can't oh, the relationship, if any, between... Yeah, and I'm, talk, I'm talking to people and I'm asking them, why are you doing academic publication? And then I've also got kind of official documents, for example, job listings, where they're, they're going to be applying for a position. And I could be asking them, why are you doing academic publication? And they could say, well, I really want to get my name out there. Or I really feel like I want to stay involved, or I really, really want to be part of the conversation. And then I can also look at um, institutional documents and some of the requirements for, for example, looking for jobs. Um, One interesting one with my Japanese participants, uh, I was talking to one Japanese participant and I said, what what is your university's take on kind of academic publishing? Like, is that one reason you're doing it? He said, the university I'm at now, I just started, they want me to teach. They don't want me to publish. He said, but looking at my career in the future, I only have a three-year contract or a five-year contract. I can't remember. And he said, looking for myself, I feel the need, because I know I'm going to be moving jobs, I feel the need to be publishing right away. And so he was also looking for research funding. There's kind of a national funding body. So he was going to be applying for that national funding body, even though his institution wasn't encouraging him to apply for that national funding body. His boss had told him, teach, don't do research. He was actually looking, so, so there's kind of different different things there that I'm interested in. What are the tensions and what are the um, synchronicities, if that makes sense? Does that answer your question, Regina? Yes, so it's almost like sort of people having different identities. I mean, I know you were talking about communities and social worlds, but it's almost like having different identities. So as a teacher, on the one hand, who's asked to teach but then as a researcher who wants to move on into a, a sort of a more academic job. Yes, yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, that's actually one reason why, I mean, I, I have to choose some population and I happen to have access to language teachers. But another reason why I think language teachers are quite interesting is because you can have a 25-year career as a language teacher and not publish anything, like not publish any academic work. Or you can publish quite a bit of academic work. So I think there's kind of an interesting tension there between practice applied and kind of theoretical writing for publication. And in Japan, there's an expectation that people at the university level publish, but there's also usually the minimum requirement is a master's degree. So you have people with master's degrees who are required to publish. Like, I have a master's degree. I'm an associate professor here. And the reason I got the job was because I have publications. My boss told me that my publications on my resume are the reason I got the job. So there's kind of an interesting tension there, I think. But I'm a teacher. I don't. I'm not a res. I'm not a researcher. I don't get. I, I don't get paid to be a researcher. My my the expectation is that I teach. Sorry, was there another Joe, question? Joe, did you have yeah, a question? Yeah, hi there. Um, I really like the idea of social roles. Uh, I think it's quite. I think I think it's productive. But but one thing which I didn't. Um, maybe it's not something you've you fully formulated yet. But I do feel perhaps that there's a distinction between identities which are almost subsets of each other's and identities which are related but are quite distinct. You know, uh, having a PhD, uh, working in a college department, those are almost like, there's almost like, those are, sub, those are identities which are in the same, almost stream. Whereas potentially being an expatriate it's a related identity. It's, it's it's a different social world, and I, I think the 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 concept the concept of a sort mm-hmm. of, of social of social worlds is really it's really interesting. I, I can see how it's how it's quite productive for what you were saying, but I thought it, it didn't it didn't it didn't feel to me that it was quite developed to take into account that those are two quite distinct, two quite different forms. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah, I think what I actually, what I need to do is I'm just thinking about it right now in terms of a lens through which to look at what my participants are saying. Yeah. And then what I need to do is rather than me make the social worlds, I don't want to have anything to do with that. What I want to do is talk to participants and go to the data and find out what they're saying to me. I think one really interesting thing from my perspective is I've got like a Japanese participant who finished his PhD in the US. And when I talk to him about where he's publishing, He's almost exclusively looking at U.S. publications, but he got his training in the U.S., and so I think if, if you look at it from kind of a social world lens, you could say he, he became part of that social world. He, like, he has an identity that is with that social world. When I ask him about writing in Japanese, he says, I did my PhD in the U.S. I've never written like an academic paper in Japanese. He says, I know where what to do, but I'm not that interested in doing it. Like, it, it would be developing a new skill. I'd rather just publish in English because it's more prestigious anyway. So I think those are the kinds of things where, and, and that's just, that's my memory of the interview. I need to get to the data and kind of mine the data. Does that answer your question, Joe? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's kind of being aware of intersectionality in, in, in those kind of identities and how, mm-hmm. and, and how they work. Because, uh, because I, think, I think intersectionality now has... Originally, it was much more. It was much more used as a, as a term to kind of embrace notions around, around usually around depression. But now we're much more we're much more aware that it, it, it nuances how we see kind of complex identities 
particularly in, the, in these kind of ways. I think the, the example you gave there is a very good example of how that works, actually. I've got one more question at the back, yeah? Hi there. John? Um, I'm John, I, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I work in a humanities research institute, and as a scientist, I often feel like I'm the interloper, but the, um, the, the, the whole notion of community and and, and, and the kinds of communities um, within humanities, for example, is, uh, is really interesting in Ireland. And um, you know, there's this expectation of how the kinds of discourse that you participate in, and depending on the various status. So, as an academic, for example, you're um, expected to have um, your first publication needs to be um, perhaps an edited volume after your thesis, while at the same time working on your monograph. If you don't have your monograph, you're just not going to be accepted into the academy. It's just the rigour in Ireland. And, um, and then publication in journals just doesn't matter. Although there's been a change in the last couple of years where we, we in humanities, are competing with scientists for the same pots of money to do research. So therefore, um, they need to have uh, different kinds of performance indicators. So it's led to um, the Royal Arch Academy, which is supposed to be uh, an inert organization, if you like, or, or um, neutral, and um, to set uh, produce a document on key performance indicators. And these key performance indicators are now changing the kinds of social organization that you have. Um, so you have, uh, you have um, the community reorganizing themselves, but also you have input from government, you have input from industry, and even humanities organizations, the humanities communities, are now, are now subject to Performance, you know, really in terms of some indicator, it impacts on their on their um, their promotion, and it impacts on their position, and it impacts on their social social engagement, and and I think it, you know, I think it comes to the, you're going to well, I would say that you have a very very difficult task in terms of that you're trying to chase a you know an evolving an evolving community quite rapidly if you were looking at Northern Ireland, you know, and then. So I don't know if it's the same in your community, but um, I, I think what you're doing is, is really, really interesting that it gives us this lens with which to look at it. But um, gosh, it's so complex, you know. But I mean, it, it, might, it might be interesting to look at those, um, those documents that have been produced in terms of performance, because you can see how it drives new academic communities. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's definitely worth looking at. Um, one one thing that characterizes Japan is that different institutions have quite different evaluative criteria as far as what counts as publication. There's some places I know of where if you have a textbook that counts as a publication for your academic record, and there's other places where they would say, of course, textbooks don't count towards your academic record, and so. There's a bit of heterogeneity in universities here that perhaps isn't as prevalent in other places. Another thing that's quite interesting to me is in Japan, there's one national funding body, and it's if you get a grant from that, it's called the Kakenhi Grant. And so all the universities, every public university, every university in Japan has to compete for those Kakenhi grants. And so that's another kind of interesting aspect of it. I think what I'm particularly interested in is my Japanese participants seem to be quite conscious of what what's out there, whereas my non-Japanese participants seem to have a lot less understanding of what's even available in the context. 
even though in some cases they've been in the, in the academy, they've been working in, for universities for the same number of years, it's perhaps just an issue of access to the information. The expatriates, the information is published in Japanese, and the expatriates just don't have as easy access to kind of what the rules are in Japanese as opposed to the Japanese who can just read the documents themselves. So. Unless there's a final comment, I think we're at the 10 minutes, Maya. Thank you very much, Theron. We are. Thank you for timekeeping for me. And the the lunch has arrived. I'm very sorry (laughs) that you can't have a cream cake, but I believe you've got cream cakes. Okay, so we'll leave you there, Theron, and perhaps you'd like to watch us um, over the internet. Uh, Although I believe it's quite late in Japan, is it? No, it's... Yeah, it's 8.30 at night here, so I'm going to get out of my office and back home. Okay. Enjoy lunch, everybody. Thank you very much, Theron. That was brilliant. (laughs)